0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel within the New Books Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the hosts of this channel. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. James Stafford, who teaches at Columbia University um, and specializes in the political and intellectual history of Ireland, Britain, and Western Europe since 1750, with a particular interest in questions of political economy and international order. And very much in that vein, uh, he has just published a book entitled The Case of Ireland, Commerce, Empire, and the European Order, 1750 to 1848, um, which touches on all of these big intellectual concerns of his. Welcome, Professor Stafford. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be
0: here. So I might jump in straight away and ask what exactly is The Case of Ireland? Because it's obviously the title of your book, and yet it's also a, a kind of trope that runs through the book itself.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So the case of Ireland uh, uh, is, you know, the phrase I've taken uh, from a very well-known late 17th century uh, pamphlet um, by a Anglo-Irish Anglican philosopher and lawyer, William Molyneux, um, who who wrote uh, a pamphlet in 1698, arguing against uh, the legislative supremacy of the English parliament at Westminster over what was then a separate Irish parliament at Dublin as part of the the Irish kingdom of the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. Um, And uh, what I do in the book, and this kind of follows the moves of subsequent uh, Anglo-Irish patriots and then subsequently Irish nationalist writers in the 19th century invoking this phrase, the case of Ireland, is look at how different um, groups uh, seeking different kinds of Irish autonomy, not just independence and separation, but also autonomy within the British Empire, um, make that argument in the context of um, the international politics of 18th and 19th century Europe. So that's one uh, thread, the case of Ireland in that that legal sense that uh, that Molyneux meant it, making an argument for Ireland. but that intersects with another uh, spin on the phrase, which is, which is more my own, um, about the idea of Ireland acting as a kind of case study um, in uh, European discussions of, uh, of, of two things, really, of the ways in which uh, foreign trade and, and colonial trade could be a source of political power in 18th and 19th century Europe, and about the British Empire as the as the prime, most successful, most dangerous exponent that kind of uh, power in the world, um, but also as a case study in different models of, uh, you know, what we could now call capitalist uh, development, what uh, at the time uh, might be called something like the progress of commerce or the progress of opulence or commercial society, uh, and how Ireland's particular social structure being the the product of of conquest and settlement in the 17th century um, could reveal um, uh, uh, or, or support different positions in Uh, in arguments about the nature of commercial society and its institutional and and legal organization. That's particularly important after the French Revolution, which is interpreted across Europe, including in Ireland, as as a revolution against aristocracy, but particularly against uh, the concentrated ownership of landed property. Um, So there's one dimension, uh, the case of Ireland, about Irish independence and autonomy. But there's another dimension, which is the case of Ireland as an example for how empire and aristocracy uh, operate in 18th and 19th century politics.
0: So one of the things I I did find quite interesting is, is that issue of how this is not really a history of Ireland itself. It's more about the idea of Ireland and how that's being used and deployed by different thinkers for different reasons. Can you say a little bit more about how Ireland becomes a kind of shorthand for debates about empire within the European enlightenment?
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, so it really starts, um, I think at least, uh, with uh, Montesquieu, the French uh, jurist and kind of comparative legal theorist and historian kind of really central figure um, of the French and European enlightenment, um, noticing uh, the case of Ireland Uh, in his book, 1748 book, uh, The Spirit of the Laws. And he makes quite a specific argument there, not about uh, Ireland as a shorthand for empire in general, but Ireland as a shorthand uh, for one model of empire, commercial empire. And what uh, Montesquieu says in The Spirit of the Laws in the middle of his discussion uh, of England as a a commercial uh, power, uh, is that when, a commercial people with a parliamentary government uh, conquer, they're more brutal, more exclusionary uh, to their uh, provinces than a monarchy uh, would be. Uh, And uh, he uses uh, Ireland, which he says, uh, has a good civil constitution because modeled on the English constitution, um, uh, but it's external uh, autonomy is, is, as he puts it, crushed by the right of nations. Uh, So the, English have have conquered Ireland and subordinated it uh, commercially. Uh, And this is a kind of pattern of of commercial empire that sees um, as one of Montesquieu's most important readers, the Scottish philosopher David Hume, uh, that sees even a territory settled with uh, Anglo-Irish colonists uh, with people uh, who are notionally of the same religion and the same uh, national or ethnic uh, identity as some other country uh, sees even them being subordinated to uh, England's ruthless commercial reason of state. Uh, So this in a sense is an adoption of uh, the Molyneux argument in the case of Ireland, which is a sort of, a kind of Anglo-Irish special pleading, right? As a kind of, hey, we are the people who subordinated this territory for you, and now we just want to you know practice proto industry and export wool and you know exploit our tenantry how we want to uh, and you're not letting us because of these uh, commercial restrictions that that restrict our um, our liberty to participate in the fruits of empire with you um, that's that's essentially the molyneux. Uh, argument, and this is what Montesquieu and then David Hume uh, noticed, that there's something particularly exclusionary about uh, a kind of empire that treats even its own settler colonists uh, as badly as uh, England treats the Anglo-Irish. So that's the kind of uh, 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 argument that gets invoked about Ireland uh, in the 18th century, and Montesquieu is making that argument. as as part of the way in which he's kind of sizing up uh, England and and, and British commercial power in the spirit of the laws. Um, it's obviously a text written initially for a French audience, although it assumed a European significance. Uh, And Hume is writing in this capacity as a disinterested Scottish critic of English commercial reason of state seeking to reform English commercial policy. And then that's a trope that other early advocates of union with Ireland, uh, like the, the Welsh cleric and political economist Josiah Tucker, then take up to say that, look, it's counterproductive to treat your own people, your own colonists as, as, as badly as English commercial policy uh, treats Ireland. Um, and then that trope uh, circulates uh, to America in uh, the, the colonial crisis of the 1760s and 1770s, and then kind of finds its way back into into Irish, uh, -Irish, Anglo-Irish criticisms of uh, British commercial policy uh, during at the time of the uh, American crisis. Um, So it has quite a long, uh, it has quite a long and quite a transatlantic career, this idea that there's something uniquely uh, brutal about uh, British commercial Mm -hmm. empire.
0: So I think, I mean, it's interesting that this has longevity and yet also there's a very interesting scope that you're engaging here of of moving from Ireland at one level to the broader British and British Imperial world to Europe, to the the Atlantic world and and how it's operating at these different levels. At one point you do talk about how certain figures within the United Irishmen, particularly more radical figures um, are engaging in this critique also of colonialism uh, and of British colonial context, but focusing specifically on the Atlantic slave trade? Could you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, and you know, here obviously uh, this is a this is a part of uh, the book that draws you know quite heavily on on earlier work, particularly by by Nini Rogers. Um, but there are kind of two. Uh, moments in the book where the question of the Atlantic slave trade uh, becomes uh, central. Um, and the, the first of those is in the, is in the 1780s actually, before uh, the, United, uh, the emergence of the United Irishmen following the French Revolution, um, where one of the reasons uh, that the possibility of a kind of Irish commercial independence within the British Empire, is so threatening uh, to British policymakers is that it raises the spectre of Ireland importing and then re-exporting sugar from uh, from Caribbean colonies that are not controlled uh, by Britain at a time where uh, Saint-Domingue in particular, but also uh, Spanish and Dutch colonies are becoming more productive and and producing cheaper sugar uh, than British colonies. So there's uh, a threat uh, to British control of the transatlantic sugar trade into England, represented by the idea that that once following this so-called constitutional revolution of 1782, when Britain relinquished the right to legislate, to control Irish trade, uh, that the Irish kingdom would would use that commercial autonomy to undermine um, uh, Britain's transatlantic uh, empire of, 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 of slaves and sugar um uh now, in that context uh it's not actually irish uh, uh, advocates of commercial independence who who uh, uh, are making the case uh, against the slave trade in those uh, terms it's It's a problem uh, that's noticed by uh Josiah Tucker again this figure I mentioned earlier this uh this Welsh uh, cleric who is uh, uh kind of uh, Anglican, early Anglican uh, abolitionist, albeit, you know, even more gradualist than later abolitionists, uh, where he's uh, a figure that um, my colleague uh, Chris Brown uh, writes quite a lot about in in his book, Moral Capital. Um, And uh, Tucker's argument is that uh, uh, competition uh, with free-grown sugar imported via Ireland will eventually produce the unravelling of uh, of the British colonial system in the Caribbean, which is already being buffeted by the loss of commercial control of the North American uh, colonies, and that Ireland can then act as a kind of agent of a of a commercial providentialism, if you like, that will um, that will bring about the unraveling of um, the British sugar colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a more that's a more passive and commercial uh, version, uh, but it's. Uh, 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 in a way, a kind of inversion of that earlier trope of, of Ireland as, a, as a, uh, an example of the excesses of commercial empire that maybe Ireland can be turned into an agency of, of reform of British commercial empire. That's Tucker's Pope in the 1780s. Um, now, following the French Revolution, the states in the slavery uh, issue were obviously raised by uh, the Haitian Revolution and the French Republic's kind of forced uh, uh, endorsement of its uh, of its results uh, as part of its struggle to, to hang on to control of its of its colonies uh, in the Caribbean against British and Spanish uh, invasion. Um, uh, but this obviously gives a, uh, once the French Republic has, has become for this kind of uh, period of the mid to late 1790s, a, a emotionally anti-slavery uh, power, that obviously gives a, a powerful new um, uh, argument, uh, particularly in um, these sort of Presbyterian circles uh, in, in, in Northern Ireland and around Belfast where there, as Mini as, as Rogers has written about, where there's quite a deep culture of anti-slavery um, activism by the 1790s, it gives them a powerful new argument um, against continued participation in the British Empire and then the war against France which at that point can fairly legitimately be styled as a a war to uphold slavery. Um, So the argument uh, that Thomas Russell in particular, and Russell uh, is a close collaborator of of Wolf Tone, one of the driving forces behind the the Northern Star, newspaper famous uh, United Irish uh, newspaper uh, centered on on Belfast, makes is about the participation of um, uh, Irish workers and soldiers and consumers um, in a slaving economy by virtue of uh, uh, paying taxes to the British state to pursue um, its war in defense of slavery uh, in the Caribbean. Um, And in the book, you know, I draw quite a strong uh, contrast between the kind of different flavors of, uh, you know, one of the obviously the literature on the United Irishman is, is tremendously uh, rich, um, but the sort of distinct contribution I try to make is sort of teasing out the different threads in United Irish thinking about commerce uh, mm-hmm. and international order. So I kind of contrast uh, Thomas Russell um, with Wolf Tone uh, and with a third uh, figure, Arthur O'Connor. Um, who's a kind of late comer to the movement, but a real enthusiast for kind of the political economy of, of Adam Smith, and also for French revolutionary thinkers like uh, Cies and, and, and Condorcet. Um, uh, and where Wolf Tone has a kind of radicalised uh, patriot, what we might think of as a sort of economic nationalist vision of, of Irish grandeur as being the goal of, of, of revolution. Um, And Arthur O'Connor is kind of very focused on the question of land and aristocracy and how to use a French invasion to uh, revolutionize the Irish uh, social uh, hierarchy. Uh, It's it's Russell who has this this universalist and this ethical uh, conception of of what resistance to Britain and Ireland uh, might entail. so I think that's, that's really his
0: sort of distinctive contribution at that point. Um, so as, as I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast will know, the United Irishmen rebellion does not bring about that kind of grandeur um, or, mm-hmm. or any kind of autonomy, really. It, it brings out the exact opposite of that um, with the Act of Union. Um, and I think it's fascinating that you look at that as a, a kind of a European event, rather than just this insular Irish or, or Irish-British event. Um, what does it mean to see the Act of Union in, these kind of Euro- in this kind of broader European framework?
1: Sure. Um, well, I'll actually, I mean, I'll start if I may with the first part of the question about um, sort of 1798 and the response uh, to that. Um, because I think kind of going back to Molyneux, um, it's important to understand that in these juridical uh, terms, uh, union um, for a lot of Irish thinkers in the 18th century was preferable to the alternative of of being a separate kingdom but being explicitly subordinate uh, to Westminster. And there's a lot of uh, rhetorical um, uh, investment uh, in both British and uh, Irish uh, champions of union in the pamphlet debate, very extensive pamphlet debate, which I. Uh, go into um, in the book, uh, that actually uh, uh, the offer of union is a kind of recognition of Irish uh, sovereignty, uh, is a recognition uh, that, as on the Scottish model, Ireland is not a subordinate uh, colonial uh, province, um, but a kingdom that can be treated with as an equal in the course of the negotiations for for, for union. Now, you know, obviously, uh, from all the work that's been done on you know secret service expenditure on on bribing um, uh, members of the Dublin Parliament and uh, the broader context the military context obviously of a rebellion having been uh, put down and Crown troops uh, being on the ground in in quite some numbers in uh, Ireland after 1798 uh, make that um, you know difficult to uh, maintain uh, as a kind of full historical account of what was going on in the Union, but it was quite an important uh, 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 point uh, for those who supported it, um, that it was a kind of, uh, uh, that it wasn't going back to the pre 1782 situation, that it was uh, taking Irish legislative independence seriously um, because Ireland through its parliament had to consent to Union, even if that consent was uh, was forced. And, you know, turning to the European context, that's one of the ways in which critics of Union um, interpreted it because they drew a parallel with the French revolutionary practice of of Réunion. uh, uh, you know, maybe the best example um, is the incorporation of of what's now Belgium uh, into metropolitan France in 1794 through a referendum. Uh, uh, but a referendum watched over by uh, French troops. Um, so there is uh, a kind of emerging uh, norm of kind of annexation by consent um, uh, in Europe in the 1790s, and there are critics of, uh, of union, kind of weak critics of union, like Richard Sheridan, the, the, the playwright, but also very um, prolific and active um, uh, spokesperson for Irish interests in the Westminster Parliament um, he draws this direct comparison uh, between the French incorporation of neighbouring states uh, through conquest and then uh, referendums that create an illusion of, of consent uh, and uh, uh, the British union uh, with Ireland um, but beyond that kind of uh, point about the legitimacy of union and how it relates to kind of um, uh, changing uh, European justifications for, for conquest and annexation. Um, there's also the, the point uh, which um, both uh, the British, but also uh, Irish and uh, continental European um, uh, kind of defenders or proponents of, of, of British power uh, sought to make uh, with the union. So it's it's meaning, Um, in a European context in 1800 um, uh, is is, is another thing that the book is uh, is concerned with, that the chapters about the union uh, are Mm -hmm. concerned with. And here it's really uh, goes back uh, to what we were saying earlier about Ireland as a symbol of uh, Britain's uh, uh, kind of ruthless uh, commercial policy that Union is styled by its defenders in, in Britain and Ireland, but also in continental Europe. And I go into some detail about um, uh, this Prussian uh, publicist and, uh, and later diplomat, quite a significant figure in the Congress of, of Vienna in the German format, uh, Friedrich Gents, um, who writes about Union as showing in essence that, that British commercial empire has matured uh, and is capable of representing a common European interest, because um, the Irish Kingdom, which had been uh, placed in a subordinate position throughout the 18th century, uh, that had been uh, denied access to the spoils of empire elsewhere in the world, was now in a gesture of, of British uh, magnanimity uh, being incorporated into the metropole. and. Uh, He talks about the way in which through the Act of Union, uh, all Britain's colonies also become Irish uh, colonies. Mm -hmm. And then this is related to a a separate uh, argument, uh, which is about the complementarity of British uh, commercial uh, wealth with European um, commercial progress. And this is taken up in the era of the Continental System, then in the early decades, uh, and in the first decade of the Union, which was also um, uh, uh, a really intense decade of commercial and military confrontation—global commercial and military confrontation—between the British Empire and Napoleon's um, Empire and Continental Europe. Um, the era of the Continental System. Napoleon's attempt to blockade um, uh, to to cut off Britain from trade uh, with the European continent. Also the British orders in council, which were about restricting um, the trade of neutrals uh, with France. So in this era of kind of commercial warfare between the British and French empires, Ireland is uh, is used as an example of uh, the benefits of of trade uh, with Britain. Um, because this is a period of very high uh, prices for Irish food, for Irish grain exports. Um, A lot of these arguments which draw on customs, house sort of trade figures, uh, these uh, look notionally very good um, uh, for Ireland in the first decade uh, of the union. So the argument is is made by um, Francois Duvenois who's um, an interesting figure in the book, an exile from Geneva who becomes a subject, a British subject by becoming an Irish subject when he's part of the Genevan colony at Waterford in the Mm -hmm. 1780s, uh, who then ends up uh, uh, being a kind of diplomat, another figure like Friedrich Gentz, a sort of diplomat publicist in British pay um, who uses the case of Ireland to make the case uh, to um, European countries that they should abandon Napoleon's continental system uh, and return to trade uh, with Britain, and that Britain is not an exploitative uh, monopolist, uh, but instead that its progress can lift all boats um, in Europe and that it's not a zero-sum competition uh, between European commercial and economic interests and British commercial and European, uh, British commercial and economic uh, interests.
0: So, so as you then trace this into the 19th century, how much do these thinkers or, or thinkers like these continue to, to sort of use Ireland to think about Ireland, whether looking at, at Daniel O'Connell or at, at the rise of the young Ireland movement and things like this, Ireland obviously doesn't stay peaceful under the Union, it stays fairly turbulent throughout probably all of the 19th century really.
1: Yes, exactly, and this is um... You know, one of the ways, going back to your uh, earlier point about kind of images of Ireland, you know, the, uh, the collapse of that Irish agrarian boom um, in uh, the later 1810s, uh, the emergence of, of rockism and then O'Connellism uh, in the 1820s is really a kind of watershed moment uh, for European perceptions uh, of Ireland. Um, and what the last chapter of the book uh, really outlines is is a debate within European liberalism uh, about Ireland and what Ireland says uh, about Britain and British power uh, because uh, Britain has a quite a sort of ambivalent significance, particularly for French liberals, and I talk quite a bit about uh, Gustave uh, de Beaumont, uh, who is um, best known as the as the travelling companion of uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, but um, was also a significant um, political thinker in his, in his own right within a kind of top framework, which was also his framework. Um, and you know, they have a great admiration for Britain and, and British institutions. Um, but they're also aware that um, particularly uh, this powerful role of uh, aristocracy and aristocratic landholding concentrated. Land holding large estates held together by laws of primogeniture so inheritance of the eldest son uh, and, and entail so restrictions on the sale or alienation uh, of land over generations um, that that these are institutions that were destroyed in the French Revolution which they do not wish to see uh, restored because they see them as incompatible uh, with a society that they describe as, as democratic defined by uh, Uh, developing equality, not necessarily material equality, but equality of status and equality uh, before the law. And they're very uh, concerned about um, efforts within France, particularly before the July Revolution of 1830, to restore that pre-revolutionary social order, which which they see as as doomed. however much is in the case of of, of Tocqueville as a kind of ambivalence or a kind of emotional attachment to some of the things that uh, aristocracy uh, can bring. So when they're thinking about this problematic of aristocracy and democracy and landed uh, property, um, uh, Gustave de Beaumont looked uh, to Britain and saw a a state that had this curious mixture of uh, rapid industrialization and urban growth, as was the case by the 1820s, 1830s, um, but also an aristocratic uh, structure of of landholding, but also of political uh, representation, um, even after the 1832 uh, Reform Act. And the role that Ireland then played, uh, for Gustav de Beaumont within that framework, uh, was essentially that the Union had um, uh, placed at the heart of uh, the British state and the British constitution, a really flawed and unstable version of that aristocratic um, social order, because it was an aristocratic social order, which as de Pomont called it, was semi-feudal and semi-colonial, that it didn't command the same natural legitimacy that the English aristocracy uh, could enjoy, because it was a uh, Based on a very recent and dubious history of the conquest and expropriation in the 17th century, um, so de Beaumont uh, saw um, uh, Daniel O'Connell as the kind of herald, albeit you know, and this is where the kind of the fact that um, you know this is still a kind of imperial perspective in Ireland that de Beaumont saw O'Connell as kind of. Uh, as, as, as rough and perhaps not capable of sort of mature political leadership but nonetheless was a kind of herald of democracy uh, in Ireland and that Ireland sort of was importing the germ of democracy into the British political system uh, and was was going to cause some kind of smash or breakdown uh, at some point because it's uh, conceptions of uh, of of, of property and of the need for equality were fundamentally different to those entertained by Britain's uh, anomalous um, uh, aristocratic industrial social system. Um, so, in a sense, you know that represents uh, to me a kind of morphing of some of the uh, the kind of propaganda arguments of the French revolutionary uh, period into the terms of. Uh, European liberalism and and social science, or even sociology, um, in the early 19th century. Uh, And so, you know, relocates Ireland uh, again. Mm -hmm.
0: I I might end then with a a somewhat self serving question about all of this. Um, The character of Edmund Burke kind of pops up a lot in your book, he's almost like a recurring character across all of this narrative. Um, And I've, out of my own research interests, I found this very intriguing because. So much of what you're talking about, he's concerned about, about how to create a stable social order based on private property, um, how to maintain the British empire and and all of these kind of places, either in the Atlantic world or in France after the revolution, he is massively interested in. And yet frustratingly, he never writes a sustained book about Ireland. Um, So how does he, how do you feel that he fits into all this?
1: I think you can see he's someone who doesn't get any of what he uh, wants in, a, in an Irish context, um, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think exerted a profound influence over uh, what happened. Um, so, uh, I mean, Burke sort of, uh, yeah, he, he crops up in a number of places, but I don't really develop a, a line on him uh, in the book, um, but uh, he's someone who is very skeptical of um, institutional fixes to the problem of Irish uh, autonomy and Irish trade. Um, He's critical of uh, Pitt's, William Pitt the Younger, the British prime minister's sort of first scheme uh, for uh, a kind of Irish uh, commercial treaty uh, with Britain in 1785 um, um, because he thinks that it, it's better for, uh, as in the case of America, for Britain to have a kind of informal superiority over the Irish Kingdom, that the facts of Irish dependency on Britain are enough and that they don't need to be rubbed in the face of the Irish Parliament by the British Parliament through things like a declaratory act uh, or uh, or a, a commercial agreement that Burke and his and his uh, allies and the opposition to pit the younger see as, as, as very unequal. Um, Uh, And obviously that uh, uh, vision of Irish autonomy kind of refalls with the union um, of 1801. Uh, So his kind of uh, Whig support for the continuance of an Irish kingdom as as part of a a generalised support for decentralised and varied systems of authority rather than centralising uniform government uh, is definitely... uh, the part of his uh, political belief system which, which is really not honoured uh, by um, uh, Ireland's rulers at the end of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. But the other and, and kind of more substantive commitment that he has uh, in an Irish context uh, to uh, Catholic uh, conciliation uh, to um, uh, an Anglican confessional state through uh, uh, um, allowing Catholics to participate in um, political uh, life is something that um, is um, uh, a product of this period and it's interesting some of the uh, so obviously one of the uh, as, as, as many of, of, of our listeners will, will know one of the uh, really controversial things about the union other than the way in which it's uh, uh, Past in a context of, of force and, and fraud, is this promise, informal promise made to the Irish Catholic hierarchy uh, by William Pitt and another British minister, Henry Dundas, uh, that uh, uh, Catholic emancipation, as it was termed, so. Uh, uh, a right of Catholics to, to participate in the Westminster Parliament was kind of part of the deal with the Union. That indeed Union made it possible because it removed the threat of the Catholic majority within Ireland uh, from Irish Protestants. Um, and you know the entire—I mean—one of the really striking things about this Catholic debate of the Union on the Union is that the entire thing is conducted on the understanding that this is what's going to happen. Um, uh, so people making the argument for union say, well, union has to happen so the Catholics can be fully enfranchised, I and mean, Catholics are enfranchised by this point, they're enfranchised in 1793, um, but that they also have the right to sit as, as members of parliament, and also crucially, um, and this is a dimension which is, which is often lost, but uh, to hold um, municipal offices, so this is, there's also a local political dimension uh, to this. Um, So this whole question of of Catholic emancipation is one uh, that uh, Burke uh, didn't address in public, uh, but by 1795, 96, 97 was writing in support of privately, uh, particularly to uh, Irish followers like um, uh, the Anglo-Irish MP, William Smith, who I talk about quite a bit in the chapter on uh, union who makes an argument for union in these Burkean terms that it enables uh, Catholic uh, conciliation and says that had Burke witnessed 1798, uh, he would have come around to union as a solution uh, to mm-hmm. this problem. And this is what leads um, kind of uh, the nascent sort of orange unionist position, uh, like the uh, orange uh, grand master, Patrick and uh, to say that uh, the union uh, manifests a spirit of Burkeism, that's what he calls it. Um, so there is, uh, in that sense, um, a, uh, um, uh, a Burkean flavour to mm-hmm. uh, to what to what happens in, in 1801, albeit then deferred until 1829, where Catholic emancipation is granted in, in terms which I think would have horrified. Uh, but it's exactly uh, the same pattern that caused him to uh, really turn on uh, the volunteer movement and Anglo-Irish patriotism in 1778 to nine of forcing a concession uh, from uh, from the British government. And at that moment, at the end of the 1770s, he uh, condemned um, the British uh, government vociferously for allowing things to get to this point where they had to make a concession uh, under threat of, of of force because they had no alternative, uh, but he's also condemns uh, uh, his, his you know his sort of erstwhile political allies within Anglo-Irish patriotism uh, for for being willing to to push their point uh, so hard. Um, so there's a lot of uh, so as you say, Burke kind of hovers over th- over things, but there's a lot of um, ambivalence. I mean, does the final uh, point, uh, and this goes actually to a sort of different part of the of the universe of, of Burke scholarship um Donald Donald Winch a Sussex uh, uh intellectual historian of political economy talks about this this issue of the Burke Smith uh problem uh and Burke's commitment to the defense uh not just of property in general but of large property and specifically these uh laws of primogeniture and entail which are the target of uh of the entire spectrum of French revolutionary opinion, not just Jacobins, but, but uh, Gyondans, uh as well. Um, and uh, the destruction of which is kind of, uh, for early 19th century French liberals like de Beaumont, as I said, the most durable legacy uh, of revolution. And what I think is really interesting is that Burke wins that argument within British political economy in the early 19th century. And it's because of um, uh, so you know, S- Smith is a is a proponent of positive inheritance of small scale farming. Um, is says a, a great uh, proprietor seldom a great improver, and that's on the basis of thinking that the division of labour in agriculture is very restricted. Um, so that's a real tension between him and him and Burke potentially, um, and the way that tension is resolved within British political economy is in favour of consolidated land ownership and larger states, because the argument made is that this actually can be more productive. Um, And this is taken from kind of British agrarian thinkers like Arthur Young, who's the author of a famous tour in Ireland, um, and uh, Young's argument. So when when Young actually went to Ireland, he didn't uh, think that it was so irrational that uh, Irish peasants lived on small plots and, and lived from, from potatoes. He could see, he thought it was a temporary phase that would pass, um, but that there was some uh, rational justification for it. Whereas by the early 19th century, more kind of doctrinaire uh, British political economists like James Ramsey McCulloch are saying, no, we know from Britain that large farms on consolidated estates with single owners is, is the way that we get kind of maximally efficient um, uh, agrarian capitalism and we need to impose this model on Ireland through uh, estate clearances mm-hmm. um, so already foreshadowing a lot of them what happens with the famine and the emergence of, of strong farming
0: mm-hmm. in
1: Ireland in the middle of the 19th century um uh, so in that sense you see uh, uh, a defense of a core Burkean commitment of of, of a strong aristocracy uh, with uh, Uh, big consolidated property uh, being made in terms which are quite uh, foreign to him, kind of drawn from um, more from um, agronomic thinking from the sort of actually nuts and bolts by how much capital do you need to have a threshing machine? Kind of, this is is the argument by the early 19th century. So uh, in that sense, he's kind of uh, vindicated uh, within British political economy.
0: So what I think all of this shows is is the the, the really complicated number of of um, of themes and questions and problems that you're combining here from from intellectual history to social even social history and political history and the history of political economy. Um, the case of Ireland, uh, commerce, empire, and the European order is out now with Cambridge University Press as part of their Ideas and Context series. Thanks so much, James, for this great conversation.
1: Thank you so much.